0: I can do things at WED without asking anybody, even my Cody wife. Island,
1: world's biggest barrel of and fun. And anywhere else your imagination takes you. okay, me. we've done that now. you we'll get the show now, you hurry, hurry
0: hurry! anything's possible at Disneyland.
1: Welcome aboard the themed attraction podcast where we take you for a ride through the wonderful world of theme park design, that is. You've just set sail on an exciting voyage to discover the who, what, why, and how they did it via in-depth discussions with theme park industry masters of the craft. I'm your skipper, Freddie Martin, and with me as always is theme park designer, master planner, and spatial storyteller from Storyland Studios, Mel McGowan. Where will the map take us today, Mel? Well, Freddie, we're uh, jumping
0: back to Storyland Studios in the middle of our two-part interview with uh, my good friend, former creative executive at Walt Disney Imaginary Tom Morris. Uh, in the last episode, we heard Tom's story that started when his dad worked on Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland and continued with him designing theme park magic for Disney over several decades. Uh, and today, we're going to hear how the art form of Imagineering is really uh, a process of telling
1: stories in space using both the right and left lobes of the brain. That's right. Today, we're continuing our master class of theme park design from concept through construction with the man himself, Tom Morris. Okay, folks, keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the boat, because episode three is about to leave the dock. Hit it, Sam. Well, that first episode, uh, if you listen to it, is really great. I mean, we get to hear Tom Morris' story from when his dad first walked him into the back door of Pirates of the Caribbean and showed him that everything that you see is not what you think you see.
0: You know, I really related to that because, you know, as you know, my dad used to work at Disney, and one of my earliest memories is him tell me about pirates and kind of blowing my mind taking me on it and uh, that
1: just sparked a career in myself as well so it really resonated with me it's so cool I mean we hear how he learned he uh, was pulled over to Epcot to do some scene stuff and of course that got him into uh, doing the uh, sort of show layout for uh, uh, Journey into Imagination he's creative lead on not one but two entire Disney theme parks I mean this guy's done everything yeah, I love the way he talked about it, almost like his kids or uh, you know, he was talking about Hong Kong Disneyland, the little theme park that could. Yeah, know? I know. It <laughs> That's me great. Are. So, um, just what before we go into this, I want to think about this. Um, you've built, uh, you've been part of the design of a theme park from the ground up, Mel. So, um, it's a monumental task, I can imagine. What do you think is the most important element in doing such a giant, huge task?
0: Well, I, uh, you know... Other than Tokyo Disney Sea, where you know, it's just an open blank checkbook. You know, I think yeah. for projects that I've worked on, I know that Tom's worked on, where there is a there is a budget, a scope, a schedule, and you have a certain minimum critical mass that you you've, you've got to uh, hit. Uh, kind of knowing what that core story is, that uh, that core emotional journey. Uh, kind of knowing what the core product is you know if if it's disney what does that mean to people Uh, and what type of uh, kind of family memory emotional experience do you have to create and again i just feel like tom was the master of doing that regardless of the cards (laughs) the hand that he was dealt in terms of budget what have you whether it's the the disney studio in paris whether it was uh you know originally a half-day park like hong kong disneyland um, to, to still be able to convey uh, a sense of this, this, again, this magical place that, uh, daddy could make some memories with his daughters was really, uh, unique and special.
1: Yeah. And I think when, uh, when, as we get into the interview with Tom, we're going to find out that there's so many more questions that, and, and answers that have to be asked and answered from uh, the beginning of the dream to the reality, you know, breaking, breaking the ground and then opening day. And so we're going to get into that. Uh, that's really why we wanted to get to Tom Morris in the room. Uh, we wanted to dig in and learn from him how he approaches projects creatively from the ground up and then pursues them nonstop. Uh, with storytelling excellence So if you're in the themed Parked in industry, themed entertainment industry Or you're an artist of any kind This is going to be a goldmine of info And history for you, so let's get started Here's the second half of our interview With Disney Imagineer Tom Morris
2: Nothing was done poorly It all looks great, you know, it's all entertaining It just needs more
1: yeah.
2: And uh, last time I went there it, it felt pretty good You know, Once, um once the new areas on the west side opened up, and now with um, Iron Man and everything, it must be pretty great.
0: There's there's a whole kind of, as you describe it, an alchemy of Imagineering you right. know, that kind of balances the left, the right brain, the business side, right. the, the kind of creative side. And so again, a, an approach to a park like a Hong Kong Disneyland or a Shanghai Disneyland, you know, when you're talking about just upfront budgeting, coming up with throughput capacity design right. day, I mean, there are decisions being made by CEOs, MBAs. I don't, yeah. I don't know who, but usually someone uh, above uh, the pay grade of, of right. even a, a VP or a creative director like yourself. But can you can you just um, describe a little bit of just again having from you know ground up gone through that experience of developing an entire park? I mean, just kind of what goes on in terms of shaping, forming, you know, the scope and scale of, of an entire park. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, well, I think the different parks are, you know, each an individual case, you know, that probably the process is a little bit different and it evolves, of course, over time. And so sometimes the um, industrial engineering piece of it is stronger than it is um, at other times. sometimes, you know, Joe Rohde is the luckiest guy at WDI because he really gets to put a piece of himself you know, into the park, I think, more than um, anybody else has ever gotten to do that. I mean, Tony, to a large extent, with Disneyland Paris in general, and myself with Fantasyland, and a little bit, you know, on some other projects, but um, you don't get to put as much of your kind of personal imprint on it as much as you would like. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, and that's just part of the, the business. I mean, it's... But so I guess what I'm saying is to varying degrees, you can or can't kind of get your own um, menu, (laughs) you know, like, here's what I'd like to have in this park. And it really is, you know, a group um, effort that's the result of a lot of input um, from not just industrial engineers, you know, um, ground level operational folks and um, gut instincts from executives all the way up to, you know, Uh, Bob Iger he doesn't weigh in on every single thing but he will you know weigh in on some things Um, obviously he buys off the final menu but I mean I'm talking about in terms of programming like you start with a blank piece Mm -hmm. of paper so what do you want to put on that piece of paper what do you want to put on the Monopoly board (laughs) and um, so I think they all are I think the process is a little different on each one depending on the chemistry of the people involved so I will want to put I will want to have more of a say myself, you know, selfishly as to what is on the menu. I know Joe Rody does, Tony does, others are less um, you know, insistent on that. So it kind of just depends on the dynamics of the people involved.
0: Mm-hmm. And there are there certain decisions that were made, you know, for example like with a Hong Kong Disneyland or Walt Disney Studios that Just are the heavy lifting in terms of achieving the budget, you Mm -hmm. know, of, you know, using, for example, Disneyland's Anaheim's, uh, you know, basic main street spine design. Or doing a fantasy land maybe more based on mid-century Disneyland, you know, um, festival, uh, you know, flats uh, as opposed to the fully fleshed out Tangerine inspired, you know, uh, European. Uh, Disney, you know, those type of decisions, are those, uh, you know, again, is that kind of creative? Is that financial? Or is it kind of just trying to find that perfect balance? Kind of
2: trying to find the perfect balance. I mean, Hong Kong was, didn't even originally have all of Fantasyland um, wow. as part of the program. So in order to get it, get more program in, you know, there was maybe less of the 1983 Tengrin <laughs> <laughs> yeah. approach and more of the 55 approach. Um, better done than the 55. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I lost my train of thought. (laughs) It's it's (laughs) It's such a complicated era. Which is a fascinating era because, you know. Yeah, I just remember what I was going to say is that, you know, a lot of it is influenced these days with recently successful attractions and wanting to replicate them. Okay, so this is a proven thing that people like. And if we do a second one, you know, it's a little bit less expensive. Like Bud's Lightyear is a good example of that. Soarin, yeah. yeah. So that's you know there's always a kind of a certain amount of go to you know the the um popular and you know the ones that you could replicate, but also to varying degrees, each park wants unique things that wasn't so important twenty years ago, but that yeah. seems to be more important now, seems so almost everything in Shanghai is unique yeah. uh, if not in its execution in its name you know mm-hmm. um so um that that always is an important thing too but then there's a lot of you know this the second guessing and and talking uh what one executive called talking to ourselves are we talking to ourselves you know are we like talking ourselves out of doing something common sense and you yeah, know right, right. so there's a lot of that you know <laughs> There just naturally is and that you know varies from park to park um but some of some great examples of you know kind of talking to ourselves is you know okay you can't assume that all cultures are the same you cannot do that Mm -hmm. but there are certain things (laughs) that are the same in all cultures and most cultures seem to like sweets and candy you know but we've had debates about you know there shouldn't be a candy shop here because this culture doesn't like candy or cookies um, or this culture doesn't like to get wet or this culture doesn't like to get scared or this culture won't participate in um, interactive things, or they won't get up on stage. Um, and we go through this. It's kind of funny. Almost
0: like <laughs> someone majors on a minor observation and, yeah. and tries to Someone their hat on that someone
2: becomes, geniosity. <laughs> yes, exactly. Someone becomes the expert on behalf of six billion people. Right, right. <laughs> of all right. Asians. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so this is kind of a funny thing that I've observed <laughs> at Disney over the years is this happens time and time again and you can almost predict it you can almost like nancy pulling the uh, or lucy i'm sorry pulling the football away yeah (laughs) the football away from charlie brown you can predict that the next park there's going to be all sorts of debate that will take a lot of time as to whether people want balloons or not or and um, i
1: read or heard (laughs) so much stuff about how the french are not going to uh, they're going They have to have their smoke breaks. They have to have their wine. They have to. They. They're not gonna be interested in the fairy tales in the same way. And, right. And, and now, you know, so many years hence, that's that's pre, It's precisely the culture that they're right. they're sort of settling into and enjoying. Yeah. About what Disney brings there. And, and there's
2: also a learning curve with every park, and and that kind of distresses me a little bit that the lessons learned during those learning curves aren't yeah. remembered. Mm-hmm over time, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it's funny, it's like the lessons learned five years ago are really important, and those are relevant. The lessons learned 30 years ago or 20 years ago aren't, but they're the same lessons. So I remember as a kid going to Walt Disney World and being amazed that no one was in line for the Haunted Mansion, um, but there was a huge line for the Skyway. Uh. There was a huge line for the Treehouse, but not a big line for Snow White or Mr. Toad. Because people don't know what's behind the box because almost every person who's there, it's their first time there. So they see the treehouse. Oh, let's go up into Mm -hmm. the treehouse. They don't know Mm -hmm. exactly what the Haunted Mansion is. It doesn't take long for that learning curve, like maybe two years, to correct itself. And suddenly you've got the big line for Haunted Mansion and the small line for the treehouse. And I watched that exact same thing happen on Disneyland Paris. With a long line for the treehouse, an hour-long line for the treehouse, and no line for Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. So what's going on here, you know? And we opened up Hong Kong Disneyland, and there's this panic because no one's going on Space Mountain. Well, because it's not—it's a little bit ambiguous if it's your first trip. Yeah. You know. And so, oh my God, we need more outdoor rides that are obvious what they are. <laughs> and okay, if you want to do that, <laughs> but give it a year or two. Yeah. And I guarantee it's gonna you know flip around yeah and so we go through this time and time (laughs) again some of these things like people don't want to get wet oh look they want to get wet Uh, (laughs) people won't join the parade look they'll join the parade it's just it's kind of a thing yeah (laughs) you know it used to irritate me to no end but now i kind of laugh at it I can because I'm not there anymore, so it doesn't yeah. have to irritate me. Well, it's, it's funny. Like, it's funny that it just keeps
1: happening. They're right for two years. Yeah, <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> that's they're right. right. That's right.
2: Uh, but if you got some of the old guys, you know, back, they could tell you that too. You yeah. know, uh, but what do old guys know?
0: Yeah. <laughs> right. So Tom, uh, it seems like we're just coming out of a couple of decades of yeah. this era of uh, of Disney uh, developing. I think we were talking about half-day parks Yeah. You know, that probably, uh, you know, started with maybe Disney MGM Studios mm-hmm. in 89 and, and probably I'd say that uh, Shanghai probably is not that. Right. Uh, it definitely marks the end of the, an era. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was up with that? <laughs> yeah, what, that what was, was what were... um,
2: an overreaction to Disneyland Paris. Um, before, prior to Disneyland Paris, Disney could do no wrong. And they l- learned the hard way with Disney MGM Studios. Oh, don't don't make it too small. Don't do it half park. There's no such thing as a half day park. People expect the full park. Well, certainly if they're paying the full price, they should be expecting the full park. Um, so, and then Disneyland Paris stumbled, and the management changed, and um, the Disney Development Company had a stronger say in things for a while.
0: And even think, though they were the ones that overbuilt the hotels and, well, and, and, and there's a reason for the some say that Parisians <laughs> <in>. <laughs> I've heard that theory. Um,
2: so there was a time where I think there was just they were risk averse to doing another park and I, I remember actually hearing and others remember this too that there'll be no more Disney full day parks. Wow but that that um, era has come to an end. Oh, no more theme parks it wasn't like even half day parks versus full parks we're done with theme parks we'll do regional entertainment now which could include maybe a you know a four-hour experience or something like that so then we went through this exploration quest model right so i worked on disney quest for quite a long time and concurrent with that was espn and a couple of Mm. other club disney's yeah Yeah. club disney and and then there were many ideas that were pitched that never uh, made it through all the hurdles and so that's just what we heard for a long time. No more, no more theme parks. And as and I was still I was still responsible to some degree for some aspects of Disneyland Paris. Tony entrusted me, post opening, with the, um, the growth of the Magic Kingdom with the Disneyland Park there um, and the any attractions that were being added. So I was still involved on a regular basis, and it just seemed to me I just had a hunch, like you know. Um, in France, they love film and they love animation, so you don't have to build a full-day park. Why not just do something that will extend the length of stay? That's four hours. That's you know a really great experience of film and very similar to how Disney MGM started, and they you know they didn't want to put any more money into it. And then I think they found they might have found something in a loophole somewhere that said they had to develop that land, or they'd lose it.
0: So, oh yeah, it was in some of the development contracts. Yeah, believe, yeah. yeah.
2: So a um, second
0: gate was committed, right? By right. So date. I think
2: suddenly they liked that idea, um, but like so many things, it, it grew from a half-day park to a, bigger, to a little bit bigger to a little bit bigger to a little bit bigger, but not quite big enough. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the Disney Paris Studios, and that um, we're now in the like Paul Presley era, I think, and. That's really, I think, what the thinking was, was start the park off small, and if there's something there that people like, um, we'll grow it out. And so that was the philosophy between behind Hong Kong Disneyland and the Disney Studios Paris, and to some degree, California Adventure. Wow. It was. Um, now, that wasn't at, perceived as being a small park, but it was a, a budget that was... Less than conventional, less mm-hmm. than historic. So all three of those parks were happening at the same time, and the object of the game was to see if they can be done for um, drastically less than well, kind of the traditional. A
0: pretty uh, big gamble in its own right. Yeah,
2: right? yep. So that's that's how that all came about, and then you know it didn't take long to see that that may have not been the right strategy for those.
0: It's kind of interesting, yeah. <laughs> definitely, there's a whole business side of yeah. you know. Does that, in fact, increase length of stay? Does it, right. you know, bring new hotel rooms? Uh, you know, even Disneyland Paris. I, I at one point in time when I visited, I know the pricing strategy was such that uh, you could uh, buy your, you know, your you'd pay full, you know, fare for your uh, studios. Ticket, Mm -hmm. But when the park closed at 5, you could then go over to the main Disneyland Park, and it seemed like a pretty nice way of getting that second day length of stay as opposed to, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, trotting off to Paris and, you know, dealing with all the other cultural competition and, you know, certainly those parks, you know, to be able to— have a minimum critical mass, but then to be able to, you know, recapitalize over, mm-hmm. you know, the next decade or, yeah. you know, two decades. Yeah. Um,
2: so you see, it's a tricky business. It's not as easy as everyone Yeah, it's thinks. not just,
0: let's blue sky a bunch of fun stuff and yeah. do a cool picture and yeah. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, uh,
2: illustrator. and And there's all sorts of factors that are involved. Economic, you know, the economic condition of the particular region that you're in, you know, the economy while you're building it there you know can be unfavorable or favorable mm-hmm. the contracts that you get you know the bids that you get back can be lower because they're having a recession or they yeah. could be higher right. because you know they're having inflation um all of those just so many moving parts are involved and <laughs> in something that seemed like it was so simple once upon
0: a time yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, a place that that a daddy wanted to make some memories with yeah. his daughters right so sweet and simple yeah, yeah. exactly so uh, what's uh, what's the next chapter for Tom Morris? What are you uh, What are you working on? What are you well, dreaming about? Well, since I've been
2: working since I was eleven, because before um, I w- was working at Disneyland as a fourteen year old, I was working as a paper boy as an eleven year old up until the time I was fourteen. Which paper? The Daily Pilot, oh. Orange County Daily oh. Pilot, and um, so and that takes up your spare time when you're in junior high school, and um, so you know. I wasn't, I didn't have a lot of spare time to travel or vacation or chill or whatever. Um, so I thought it'd be kind of cool to do nothing for a couple of
1: years
2: (laughs) and see what nothing feels like. And, um, I'm not doing a very good job of it. I'm still doing a little bit of consulting when things, you know, when there's something kind of interesting looking. Um, and I have been encouraged to write a book or two. Um, I've, gathered the beginnings of material for these books that seem like, you know, it would be a good thing to kind of finish off that idea. Um, since I've already kind of put some um, time into it, these were pre- presentations um, that I developed that um, I've given to schools, you know, USC, UCLA, Texas Tech, et cetera. And they really lend themselves to, um, to books Disney Publishing is interested in at least one of them. And so um, if I get the green light uh, coming up in the next few months, then I might be doing a book. That would be great. And uh, if that book goes well, I might be doing a second book. (laughs) In the meantime, I give presentations to those who are interested in seeing my presentation. So I've been sent to Florida and up to the Bay Area and all these different places to give some of these presentations, and um, um, I don't know what is exactly next. I, <laughs> I've i been working on my landscape, finishing up <laughs> this project that never was finished, you know, because I was always too busy, and yeah. that's about to finish right. up. Yeah, And I might get back on my surfboard, because it's been a couple of years now. And
1: well, um, <laughs> I'd
0: love to ask you about, I know one of the things we've talked about when we've walked Disneyland is uh, you, you have a unique passion behind some of the, kind of the, where the bones are buried, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> underneath Disneyland and right. some of the archaeology and, right. and kind of history and, and even some of the, um, correcting some of the assumed uh, mythology and, yeah. you know, yeah. false history right? that's out there um, yeah. around uh, kind of Walt's original park. Yeah. where that, where that bug and that passion for that history the national geographics
2: you know with, that we okay. grew up with yeah. with um that had the acetate cell overlays where yeah. you could see the evolution or de-evolution of a civilization yeah, yeah right you know the des- destruction <laughs> of pompeii yeah. and you'd take that I cell overlay that yeah. yeah um and then being a disneyland you know historian fanatic you know kind of like okay i logically or intellectually have heard certain stories or, you know, you hear that such and such attraction was where this other attraction is now, but you want to see it. Yeah. I want to see that. Yeah. I want to see exactly where. Yeah. And I want to see what scene was on top of what scene, you know. <laughs> I, you know, the same way with the National Geographic. I want to see it. I don't want to just, you know, kind of know it or hear about it. So um, I had started the, uh, gathering information or kind of just like stuff about Pirates of the Caribbean in New Orleans Square when I started back in 79 or 1980 and then put that away in a folder for years and years. And so when something interesting would come across my desk, I'd put that in the folder. <clears throat> and then I started working on some kind of historical projects, his, history related projects for the company, D23 type things. and so. All of a sudden, you know, I'm seeing more really cool things, and so pretty soon I have like enough to do a thing about New Orleans Square and the history, the real history of the haunted mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean, kind of beyond a f- superficial look. And um, and I jokingly mentioned that to someone from Disney Publishing in a meeting, and they said, "That's a great idea. Do you know anyone who's working on oh, that?" Boy. And I said, "Well," they go, "Are you working on it?" I go, "I." Not until I'm not working here, because I don't have time to work on the idea. And it's like, well, let us know whenever you're ready. Oh, that's great. So, um, so once I hear from them, they say they're still interested in yeah. it, um, then I'll start up on that, and I'll need help with it. So I'm going to enlist the help of some of my friends who are topical experts on yeah. things like Main Street or Tomorrowland or oh,
1: that's
2: great. Um, where all the lessees used to be. You know in the park originally,
1: yeah, one of my one of the <laughs> things recently that my jaw dropped, and I don't even know if it's on purpose i would I right. bet you might know, but i you know I just started looking at pictures of the chicken plantation on the yeah. on the water right, and then and i'm I'm kind of studying it, looking at it, thinking no that i i can i it wasn't around when I was here, but right. I could see that where it is, where it was on the mm-hmm. map, and then I saw the blue bayou, and it's got a a very similar structure on that building on the inside. I went, oh my goodness, somebody just, is that their first, is that the first like Easter egg where they're saying, hey, this used to be the chicken restaurant and here right in that same place?
2: I don't think it's actually an Easter egg, but it is probably a holdover from the thought that they were going to keep the plantation, which was true. They were going to, when they did New Orleans Square, they originally, they were going to keep the plantation house, move it yeah. like ninety degrees because yeah. that's what they did back then. <laughs> <laughs> just move
1: and, houses around just
2: move houses around. And it was gonna be like turned around ninety degrees and incorporated into New Orleans Square. Yeah. And then that idea didn't stay. Yeah. And um and I think that they knew that they were going to do some kind of a Blue Bayou restaurant. Yeah. So I think you know it's like, well, we got to have a plantation.
1: Yeah. You know, and certainly, you know, you know a, a plantation looks like a plantation. Yeah. And So we've got we've got drawings. We know what. I've plantation never compared them like that. though. That's an interesting Look at them, thing. They're, they're pretty see close. If, uh,
2: how much of it? Yeah. 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 Let's but see how but much yeah, of that's
1: archaeology. Yeah, that is
2: totally archaeology. Definitely, yeah. yeah. And like you know, where exactly was the plantation house in plan? You know, you want to see in plan exactly where right. everything. Right. Well, I appreciated
0: like, some of the nuggets, you know, just even architectural precedents like that of of finding the true source of right. Disneyland City Hall. You know, yeah, right? Eddie I've Sato been to Fort really Collins. Mm-hmm. I've seen the yeah. county courthouse photos. It just didn't look the same to me. You know, right. But, uh, dig yeah.
2: and, Eddie Sato has a lot of those, you know, that he's uncovered because yeah. he went through every book at the Imagineering Library and he'll stumble across, you know, these books that were checked out by Bill Martin and you know, all the grapes back in the day, (laughs) back in the day, Herbie and Marvin Davis. And sure enough, you know, well, here's the Beacons building in Wisconsin. And here's, you know, the real city hall in Minnesota or wherever it was,
0: Michigan or something. Michigan. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome.
2: Yep. Um, And there's a lot of that, you know, I don't know if anyone's really, you know, like, Gone to the level of this balcony. Yeah, right, This, right. Column, yeah, right. the, this you Exactly. Know.
0: What did we cut and paste from? Yeah. There. And the scary
2: thing about the book the is, street. you know, where do you stop with all of that? Right. And, you know, it's I, a rabbit I, hole. It's a no Wonderland. Like it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it really is a rabbit hole. So there's got to be some, you know, stop point on that. But, you know, Eric Linksweiler knows the real story behind the flagpole base mm-hmm. i can't remember what it is but it's like hilarious. you hear one story for years and years yeah, and, yeah. and then this other guy finds out no it's yeah. it, and it's from a different source interesting yeah. yeah i know some of the trees you know um that are original trees in the park yeah. the eucalyptus behind um, pirates of the caribbean was yeah. there from the wow. from the original ranch you know, Dominguez
1: but, Palm. Is... Dominguez
2: Palm, but it was moved. Yeah. But it was there. It was over by where the um, uh, where Pirates is now.
1: Yeah.
2: Wow. You know, moved two hundred feet. Yeah. <laughs> um, the eucalyptus trees, you know, behind Main Street and Fantasyland are original. But there's a photograph I found of the Walnut Grove, taken in 1903, that the Orange County Archives has. It's a pretty clear photograph. And you can triangulate where it was from the 1953-54 photographs of the site. So you can do a dissolve of this picture taken in 1903 into what's there now, which is the backside of water. It dissolves into (laughs) the back of the Schweitzer Falls. That's
0: fantastic.
2: So there'll be stuff like that in there it's just it's going to require <laughs> it's going to requ- i have to like go to UCLA library oh, where they have a collection of aerial photographs and cuz disney doesn't have.
1: Well let me know if it. you need any help i just yeah i'll uh, <laughs> <laughs> be This episode was brought to you by MyStudioSpace.com. MyStudioSpace is a group of fun and thoughtful online professionals who want to make you happy by simplifying and personalizing your website with powerful and cheap web hosting and domains. If you're not web savvy, talk to MyStudioSpace. They rub off. Honest. Call 407-701-7577 or go to MyStudioSpace.com to get started. One question I love yeah. to ask people, um, especially people who've been around for a very, very long time, um, at, having been at the parks. Right. 73. So is there a spot in the park? I've asked this. I asked Tom Nabby, who used uh-huh. to be Tom Sawyer. Right. I asked Bob Gurr the other day. Like, where in the park do you go today that you can still feel that original spot that like that hits you? Wow, it's still like that. There's right. still something that Is still very familiar to Mm -hmm. uh, Tom Morris in 1973.
2: Well, parts of Tom Sawyer Island, I'm I'm glad haven't been, you know, taken out. I last time I went on it recently, I'm like, oh, they still have Castle Rock, and they Mm -hmm. still have, you know, all these different things on it. It's still cool. I wish the fort was still a place you could go into, but you know, the caves are good and. and there are moments when you're in there. It's like, I remember when I was a six-year-old, you know, it's the first time. It's
0: still pretty immersive. Yeah, know, and
2: in New Orleans Square, you know, I was eight years old when that opened, and it was it was so adult to me. It's like, oh, you know, it's very sophisticated. Yeah. Mother and <laughs> father. And making moms
1: making that's, perfumes.
2: That's so. right, exactly, you know. And then they're going to listen to jazz, to Freddie, Teddy Buckner or whatever, and Freddie Martin. <laughs> You know, at, at the stage and uh, we're going to, hit, you know, eat at the Cafe Orleans. It was very genteel <laughs> and that, you know, and I think Adventureland for the yeah. most part still is all there. Yeah. And um, And what's been added is good, you know, like the queue area of Indiana Jones is really good. And yeah. so in Main Street, you know, obviously.
0: Um, there has been a balancing act of keeping the the essence of the original park but the the layers that have been added to it over the years uh, Mm to actually make it kind of a deeper richer Mm -hmm. experience i I like everything except for the crowds but uh, (laughs) yeah i can't believe
2: that i mean i remember a day when you could ditch school for your birthday you know in february and there would be nobody yeah on wednesday or even that saturday in february for that matter you can shoot a cannon through yeah. the park.
0: <laughs> it and is funny, though, when you talk about, you know, people uh, kind of memorializing the past, you know, back in the day when you talk about, like, the the Fantasyland, you know, car, you know plywood, yeah. false front facades. It's right. Um, versus today's Fantasyland. Yeah. Or, you know, I remember my training experience of, of uh them bragging about the different colors of slurry coat yeah, you know yeah, right. over the that's asphalt right. we that's would right. have green for the jungle yeah, adventure that's land right and, yeah, yeah green for tomorrow, for tomorrow. That. Yeah, yeah right and uh you know just versus the intentionality and the thinking behind the pavers and the hardscape yeah. and the uh what have you these days it's well in the lovely.
2: early 70s you know once the haunted mansion opened the park uh, you know to a 10 year old did not change for years hmm you know shops didn't change there was a moment in time wow. when nothing changed <gasps> mission to mars that was oh my yeah, god they're going to change the moon ride into the mars ride you <laughs> know or you know carousel of progress to america sings it yeah. was you know meh. Um, and in fact i remember Person hearing changed. well we're, they're not going to ever do rides again because they're too expensive they'll do these shows like bear band and america sings mm-hmm. and that's what <clears throat> you know we can expect for the next you know for the future and i remember thinking god it's just so sad nothing you know if, a, if a, a new shop went in like i think the Disney Anna shop went in one day in 1974 and I'm like yeah. that's you know a new shop
1: yeah
2: oh my god a new shop <laughs> and that's, things did not change at disneyland and i remember being younger when i was like five or six years old and you go to disneyland you wouldn't expect to see the same thing and i even my dad would say that it's yeah. like oh you know that's this is gone now. Now there's a new exhibit, you know. Until oh, what? Well, this,
1: Until Big Thunder is that when they and st- uh, Space
2: it was still like every 2 or 3 years, yeah. you know, then Space Mountain. That was big. Space Mountain was big. That was the first ride big ride since yeah. Haunted Mansion. And then Big Thunder, that was good, and then New Tomorrow or Fantasyland now it's like changing so much (laughs) so you hear people complaining about (laughs) it changing too much change I think it's yeah too much change not enough change it's sensible change is what you want you want it you want Mm -hmm. it to always be better and improved and you know some things need to go but some things don't need to go so that's another you know difficult balancing act that management and creative they all have that difficult you know yeah decision-making to do. I've
0: got a weird segue here. I, I guess I'd love to have on the show is uh, Al Trevino Jr. He was uh, one of the first uh, urban designers that he used to work with Victor Gruen Associates. Mm. And uh, he was really the lead urban designer on uh, a lot of the, the the large canvases that were some of the, the historic ranchos in Orange County here, oh, including yeah. the the you know the, um, Laguna Niguel, um, uh, the Irvine Ranch, yeah, including the habitat that you uh, you kind of ferminated in as a young child, East Bluff. Ray and, Ray you know, Watson claimed to me
2: that he laid out the bluffs. I don't know if that. Well, is
0: I guess true from what I, for, in talking to Al, I guess they were pretty hand in hand, and yeah. uh, I guess Ray is kind of a little more of a policy. Uh, yeah. I mean, Ray was one of my professors, right. uh, adjunct professors when I was working on my urban design. But I guess he was more of a planner, policy, mm-hmm. economics, uh, modeling, whereas Al was a little more of the actual pencil on right, the so trace. He, you know, so he laid out East bluff and Yeah, yeah and, oh, and, and cool. they were pushed and pulled on some different models and products and... What have you? But just, I was just curious in your take. You've been around the world. You've designed some pretty crazy stuff. Like, what was what's your take on that? That and again, uh, East Bluff and, and the original Irvine. Well, I mean, that was the same was there days too, as Pereira, which I never knew. And Epcot in fact, and, I didn't know any of this until yeah. years later. I didn't know that
2: William Pereira was the guy whose office was in that barn right at the Buffalo Ranch. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had no idea. I knew Ray Watson. That I did know. Urbanus Square, Ur- I think, is what yes! they called the the, bar- yes. <laughs> the the barn. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, we called Lofty it Urbanus, goals. but yeah, you know, Urbanus Urbanus. <laughs> I remember my dad saying that that used to be a buffalo ranch. I'm
0: like, <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. is that
0: bullshit?
2: I don't know. You know, don't yeah, no, know. there was
0: attraction back in the day. You yeah. had no way of knowing that there was no yeah. internet. Yeah, in there. right. So that's I, right. okay,
2: he says it was a buffalo ranch. Yeah. Um So yeah, Pereira was in that. So what was it like
0: growing up? In and my that?
2: mom was working in the Robinsons building designed by Pereira. Yeah. You know, Fashion Island was my yeah. playground, mm-hmm. my default, de facto playground. Al Trevino
0: has been uh, spotlighted lately for being the guy that laid out the original Fashion Island, doing the whole outdoor. Yeah, you know, uh, lifestyle it was groundbreaking. center. Groundbreaking. Know, was
2: know, yeah. I was just there uh, at Fashion Island last week, and the bluffs. I drove through the bluffs, and just like this was remarkable that they dedicated this much space to rolling hills and trails mm-hmm. and but I had no idea as a kid that it was a distant cousin to Epcot yeah. that it was you it's know a greenbelt yeah. green communica- community a greenbelt community uh, that was inspired by Archibald whatever his name was yeah. who did and those, Ebenezer Howard Ebenezer Howard it, it, it incident, probably
0: is yeah. more related to the the majority of that Epcot city plan yeah. in terms of the low rise right. residential areas and that and, was
2: being designed when Ray was consulting to Walt yeah and
0: I don't know why Ray was trying to talk Walt out of it, but you know, when <laughs> well, I guess Ray I, was doing it. <laughs> I guess Al was uh, actually became a Disney executive after uh, leaving Irvine Company and, and going on to GE and some other stuff. Uh-huh. Um, uh, he shared with me that he was actually one of the guys that um, either suggested or helped Card Walker along with the idea that, uh, you know, one way of fulfilling kind of Walt's Epcot legacy of, you know, uh, backing off of the actual city, you know, right. with residents and voting rights and right. all that uh, was to do kind of the Future World kind of theme center mm-hmm. uh, ideas, uh, kind of a public forum. So it's kind of yeah. a whole interesting That's, lineage yeah. there. Oh, from yeah. uh, you know, know East Bluff, your, your childhood neighborhood, right. to Epcot the city, to Epcot Center, which you worked on there. Right.
2: I know. It is amazing. <laughs> I still come across information and names of people that were kind of involved in Uh, And my best friend, Greg Lewis, his dad, Elliot Lewis, worked for Buzz Buzz Price in the (laughs) mid-60s and did the economic impact report for Epcot, the city, in case you ever think they really weren't considering doing it. They got as far as economic impact reports.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think I've read that report. I think it's on the the Buzz Price archives. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, so, uh, my best friend's dad was working on the real Epcot city, you know, during this time too. So it's just very bizarre how all these things come around. And then I, there was a period of time where I began to doubt my friend, like, <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> and then I, t- I saw his name on a memo finally. I'm like, yep, he was there. And, uh.
0: Well, this is so far turning out to be quite the the saga here, Tom. Yeah, and, I know. You know, they okay, go on and I'll, on. I'll uh, let you rest, and some someday uh, have the guts to ask you back. But I do want to leave with uh, you know, in terms of thinking of kind of um, young folks, uh, young folks. Uh, you know, the young kids you know, these days. Yeah, these, these youngsters. <laughs> I these think days. we all. Think we're still what's after millennials? Gen Gen Z. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but you know. Kids uh, wanting to get into the industry or thinking about, uh, you know, hey, I'd love to go beyond right. uh, designing a roller coaster tycoon. Yeah. I don't even know the current video <laughs> right. games that you play these days. I, to I, I wish I had that when I was a kid, when I was 10, 11 in my room, drawing up future cities and theme yeah. parks. But um, any, any advice, any uh, kind of lessons learned, brain damage incurred? Uh, that well, I, you would, I, I think the fundamentals,
2: wisdom, you know, all still apply of – you know, getting some illustration in. if you're interested in going into the creative side of things, you know, it doesn't, not I'm not talking about beautiful paintings. You don't have paintings. to be a fine artist. You don't have to be a fine artist. You just have to know good design principles. Mm-hmm. So taking classes that reinforce design principles, even art history, because there are certain things that are as applicable today as they were thousands of years mm-hmm. ago. Sure. Um, so having a little bit of that behind your belt for me, the most important classes that I took, well, there was always like, I I did have some good teachers, you know, I have to say. (laughs) And they left me with, you know, some of these rules of thumb and, and things like that. And I had good film studies teachers, both in high school and in college. And, you know, teach, or kind of teaching you how to look at film and to analyze it on a different level and how you compose a scene. And I think, cinema and film is still kind of the preeminent art form Um, trumping out theater trumping out um, games video Mm. games and all of that Um, because people still spend more money on that you can tell people are still you know it still attracts people there's still something to the art of um, film And the art of animation, the shape language, the composition and all of that, that's applicable to this business, to any design business. Um, So I took a lot of classes and I wasn't majoring in anything. I took advertising and I learned a lot from advertising. I learned a lot from a book called The Hidden Persuaders about little tricks to catch people's attention um, on packaging, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, how how you have uh, dominant. Uh, images and subordinate images within um, a poster or within yeah. an advertisement. These are all kind of like simple things that, but you know, you may you may miss it and never think about it, yeah. and then it becomes like so obvious to you, you know, later on. But there, it's you can't assume that all of the um, lessons that have been learned are going to be handed down, and there'll mm-hmm. be these hiccup mm-hmm. periods where they're not handed over. And I was just watching a film. I previewed a film called Howard by um, Don Hahn, mm. the Disney animation yeah. producer, yeah. Yeah. live action producer, too. Yeah. And it's a film about Howard Ashman. And in the middle, it is a great film. It's very, it's beautiful, it's moving. And in the middle of this film, Howard Ashman is brought in from New York, um, somewhat reluctantly, <laughs> into Glendale to work with the animation group, who have forgotten by this time about the fundamentals of storytelling uh, and so they haven't done the mermaid yet or they're finishing up the mermaid yeah. and he's in there now for beauty and the beast and beauty and the beast isn't working it's not a musical um and they're struggling with how we get people to bond with Belle, and he's like you open with a song and i want song yeah and it may sound cornier." And everything, but you've got all the business done after four minutes, yeah. and you, you know, and the animators are like, "You mean, you, you know, you can like you do this convention <laughs> where like you get pe-. they were like, and, you know, and then years later, like the animators are saying, we we can't believe we didn't know that, yeah, right, uh, you know, we, yeah. but we were too kind of like full of ourselves to admit that at the time. Wow, and um, so. These are kind of things that again, that are repeating, you know, over history. That like, we've, there are these lapses where the information doesn't get transmitted, yeah. The yeah, yeah. best practices don't get, or we
1: swing yeah. too far in the pendulum, away Right, to, to, right. to getting too cool, to getting, yeah,
2: because too- you do need to change it up, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to yeah. change it up, yeah, be stagnant, yeah. right. But once things kind of aren't working for you and you've changed things up, what do you go back to? Yeah. You gotta kind you have of have to read de- rediscover fundamentals. It, 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 or, or hope
1: that somebody's going to clue yeah. you in, like Ashman.
2: Right, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, you know, the fundamentals still apply of design, taking design classes, taking um, art history classes, film classes, theater classes, business classes. I took um, a business class, economics, two semesters of economics. And I, you know, there are things that I remember about that class. That professor had a couple of interesting things that would not be allowed in this day and age (laughs) to help you remember or or think about things economically, supply and demand. Um, And a lot of those lessons have, you know, stuck with me. And um, so some, you know, degree of well-roundedness is good. And then some degree of like focusing in on something also is I think important. And, um,
1: so yeah. good
0: to be renaissance but uh, also good to major in something and then yeah right deep and yeah, then it right, doesn't
1: so. it doesn't hurt to travel Europe and take pictures of castles well, well traveling is probably the number
0: of... one
2: thing I mean I that's opened my especially eyes especially
1: in placemaking yeah, placemaking
2: and you will discover um, not just cool looking things and places but yeah. um, processes mm-hmm. and you know people learning about people um, and different cultures and um it will just open up things like they do the, they've been doing this here for okay. 150 years <laughs> and we've never done it you know or tried it in the united states or they tried it once in 1947 and it didn't work because they didn't do it right you know but yet you see it over here happening and and so those kinds of things are you know big eye openers and also just the whole sense of time out there or you know not just europe asia you know what they've been doing for thousands of years the yeah. middle east They invented many, many things that we claim to have invented or the Europeans claim to have invented. And then you do some research on it. You discover it was actually, you know, the Middle Easterners who invented this thing or discovered this. And so, um, you know. The value of
0: remembering what we forgot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What we would already learned. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
2: (laughs) Right. You know, and some of the businesses that worked on Disneyland Paris have been in business for five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred years. Right, we got that's right. tiles made by the company that's been making ceramic uh, roof tiles for five hundred years. Yeah, you know, it just wow. it's very strange. <laughs> you know,
1: probably and, the best tiles in any Disney yeah. park. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or any house in Irvine. Right. So uh, I got a bonus
0: around uh, here. What's your favorite non-Disney? I think I know what your favorite Disney. Uh, theme park is, but what's your favorite non-Disney oh, theme park? Well, I I
2: do like Tivoli Gardens quite a bit. And I went there for the first time in the mid-90s, and then I've gone back about four or five times. I really like it. Um, I also now really like Europa Park in mm. Germany, um, mm. since they've expanded. And it's
0: a really great Mac showroom. <laughs> yes, it's the best <laughs> the showroom best you'll ever showroom. go to. Yeah. And it,
2: probably more than any place maybe besides Tokyo Disneyland I get these little flashbacks of Disneyland 65 you know (laughs) when I go there not literally but in you know just the way that they do things and and there doesn't seem to be a lot of overthinking yet it's not underthought. but you know sharing a space with three or four different rides Mm -hmm. um, a people mover Mm -hmm. a monorail yeah um a restaurant yeah. on a lake. I don't know. There's there's a genteelness to it uh, that reminded me a lot
0: of... And that, that park was one of my childhood parks in, growing up in Europe. And, yeah. and just, again, to see what that park was when they opened in the early 70s. Right. Uh, you know, just this really peaceful garden park. Yeah. Uh, to what it is today. And I kind of laughed really at low. it the
2: first time I went. I was, you know, how quaint. Um, but it was neat that it was kind of in a forest a little bit. But now With an actual
0: castle, yeah. <laughs> In the back of the now, house. there's a lot there.
2: Yeah. There's, it's got a lot of attractions. Some, you know, a lot of e-ticket attractions. Some fun, some fun rides. You can't take any like single one thing and go, you know, this is really great. Um, but it's a lot of fun. It's a eight hours worth of stuff, and at the end of the eight hours, you have seen half of it. Yeah. Intermixed with some like really clever ideas, you know. I was saying about you discover something that no one maybe has ever thought about doing in the United States. And at Europa Park, you can bring your dog, uh-huh. and they have a whole bunch of little, <laughs> really cool dog houses. And it's sponsored by Purina. Wow! And so you can go from land to land, and here's a really cool dog house <laughs> over here, and they're, they're supplied with water and the food, Purina wow. food. Wow! And it's a little rest area for your dog. Oh,
1: that's, that's
2: a great idea. Yeah. You know? wow. um, so you, you always find some little neat idea. That Fast Pass was um, developed by Alton Towers originally. That they're the folks, the park that came up with that idea, and then Disney, you know, took the idea and made it better. Um, and they're doing; they've been doing video capture for years now. Yeah, and, we, and I, I haven't seen video capture in any other park. I don't think
1: they did it in the um, well here at uh, or at, in Florida at the. Tower of Terror and... Oh, um, it's video now? Yeah. yeah. And, and Snow White. Seven Dwarfs. Dwarf 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 Dwarf. Okay. They, they'll capture oh, yeah. a little thread of you.
2: Okay. Yeah, that's good. Right, But it, they've been doing it for... For years over there. For years over there. <laughs> I know we were
0: both uh, talking earlier about Efteling as a, a shared uh, yeah. reference point. Yeah, that's a, a great park, source too. Source of admiration. It's hard
2: because, you know, I think Porta Ventura is a good park. Europa Park is good. Efteling, Tivoli... Um, tivoli is the sweetest you know yeah and and you can definitely see the dna yeah that came from it into disneyland with the care that's taken into little lighting fixtures mm. yeah. and signs like and the hard detailing and, and yeah the, the railing like, a great you know. source of inspiration. I, I think i have a library of, you know of all the sh- photos of the different types yeah, of ra- railings yeah. that they yeah. have yeah the <laughs>
0: area yeah. development details is yeah just amazing there yeah Well, guys, we've been going for a while. I can't thank you enough, Tom. Um, Well, thank you. Hopefully uh, you had as much fun as as we did. We did. I did. (laughs) Soaking it up. (laughs) Yeah. Anytime. (laughs) Awesome. Well, always an open invite here at Themed Attraction. So thanks, and we'll sign off for today.
1: All right. See you later. Thank you. Wow, you weren't kidding, Mel. You called him the professor before we got started, and, I mean, that's exactly what it is. Uh, he is a wealth of information, uh, of teaching, of learning, and, and he's an open book. Um, so he's doing what he can to help take the industry to the next level here in his second career. Um, it's so great to capture him in this moment in time, don't you think? Well, we were really humbled and
0: honored to you know get him... Uh, not only to do the podcast, but actually to collaborate a little bit creatively as we're in this blue sky phase for this uh, new theme park project that we can't wait to spill the beans at a future date yeah, <laughs> when, sh- when it's kosher sh- to do so. But um, you know, the thing I appreciate about Tom is he's really also taking time off from making money consulting uh, to really kind of uh, document the brain damage that he's incurred over the last few decades uh, and the lessons learned into really what I think could be a pretty important um companion piece almost a spiritual successor book to uh bob thomas's art of animation um i think he's talking about calling it the the alchemy of imagineering and everyone uh, on the podcast here got a great taste test preview of of that book i think today so i, I don't know about you but i'm gonna put my name on that amazon yeah, wish list waiting
1: it, list so as soon as that comes out i'm gonna try to
0: motivate them to keep pushing it along
1: yeah that's that's awesome well we better wrap this up who knows what other exciting adventures we're gonna find just around the bend mall it's been fun thanks for joining me on the podcast today The Themed Attraction Podcast is hosted by Freddie Martin and Mel McGowan. Our guest was former Disney Imagineering creative executive Tom Morris. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at TomKMorris. Get access to more stories and interviews at themedattraction.com, the world's most comprehensive site on theme park and theme park attraction design. Connect with Mel by email via mel at storylandstudios.com or follow him on Twitter at Mel McGowan and Instagram at visioneer. You can find me at freddymartin.net and follow my adventures at SkipperFreddy on Instagram and, and Twitter. Our theme music was composed by Rob Watson. Other music provided by the lost dogs. This episode was designed and produced by the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. Find him at barryrhill.com. You know, Mel Barry used to teach cursive handwriting before he came to the podcast. But the crocodiles are aggressive out here, so now he's teaching shorthand. Thanks for listening, folks.